If you have a Bible, I want to encourage you to open it to First Timothy, or sorry, Second Timothy, chapter one. Uh, if you've been around at all this fall, then you will know that we've been doing a study on the book of Acts together as a church. We're in the early stages of that, and so you might be wondering, the question you might have this morning is, why are we opening our Bibles to 2 Timothy? Why is there a message on 2 Timothy? The short answer to that question is because I'm not very smart. Um, so I mentioned, you know, we had the men's retreat this weekend. I was speaking at the men's retreat uh, yesterday. This upcoming week, I'm helping lead a, a uh, a workshop, a conference on expositional preaching, and we're going through the book of Second Timothy together. So I'm preaching there on Tuesday morning, and uh, that's why what you're getting today is actually the sermon I'm going to preach to these pastors on Tuesday, because I discovered this week that writing three sermons in one week is just too much. So that's the reality of it. I didn't learn anything on my sabbatical, but I've learned it now. So, 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 13 to 18. I'm going to invite you to stand as I read God's word in your hearing. And here's what it says. Follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. You are aware that all who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Phagellus and Hermogenes. May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Anesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. But when he arrived in Rome, he searched for me earnestly and found me. May the Lord grant him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. And you well know all the service he rendered at Ephesus. You can be seated. So this morning... We are parachuting into the book of 2 Timothy. I'm not even starting right at the beginning. Uh, it is a relatively short book or letter by New Testament standards. There are just four chapters in it. The context of this letter is that Paul was in prison in Rome, and this is actually the, the last, letter, last letter that he wrote, and he wrote this letter to his protege and his dear friend Timothy. But the, the letter of 2 Timothy is also, in a sense, like his last will and testament to the church. The theme of this letter, the theme of 2 Timothy, is the gospel. And I mentioned this, there are four chapters in 2 Timothy. If we could outline the book this way, and this is your kind of introduction to the book. In chapter 1, there is the charge to Timothy to guard the gospel. Paul tells Timothy, by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. In chapter 2, we find the charge to suffer for the gospel. Paul will say there, join with me in suffering like a good soldier of Jesus Christ. Remember Jesus Christ. This is my gospel for which I am suffering even to the, be to the point of being chained like a criminal. In chapter 3, Paul gives the charge to continue in the gospel. He says, evildoers and imposters will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue what you have learned and have become convinced of. And then chapter four concludes with the charge to preach the gospel. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, I give you this charge. Preach the word, be prepared in season and out of season, correct, rebuke and encourage with great patience and careful 
instruction. So that's the charge. Guard the gospel, suffer for the gospel, continue in the gospel, and preach the gospel. This is a vitally important letter for the church. In the introduction to his commentary on 2 Timothy, John Stott said this. He said, The church of our day urgently needs to take to heart the message of the second letter of Paul to Timothy. For all around us, we see Christians and churches relaxing their grasp of the gospel, fumbling it, in danger of letting it drop from their hands altogether. A new generation of young Timothys is needed who will guard the sacred deposit of the gospel, who are determined to proclaim it, are prepared to suffer for it, and who will pass it on pure and uncorrupted to the generation which in due course will rise up to follow them. Now, John Stott wrote those words in 1973, but they are every bit as true today as they were on the day that he wrote them. There are churches around us relaxing their grasp on the gospel, fumbling the gospel. Now, there are also churches around us who are engaged in faithful ministry. So this morning, what I want to do is I want to talk about faithful ministry. What does it look like? And what I want to do is I want to draw your attention to three things we learn about faithful ministry from these verses. The first thing we see is that faithful ministry is measured by a standard. So what exactly does that mean? Well, verse 13 says, follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. That word pattern is an interesting word. It's only used one other time in all of the New Testament. But it was used frequently in other ancient writings. It was used to describe a writer's outline or an architect's sketch of a building And the basic idea of that word, as it's used here, seems to be that it sets the parameters or the boundaries for what is acceptable, right? Don't go outside of these lines. So the New American Standard Bible translates the verse this way. It says, retain the standard of sound words, which you have heard from me. So there is a standard by which faithful ministry can be measured, now, I know it's resisted in our day, but we, we have used standardized ways of measuring and testing things for a very long time. So you can think of some of those kind of standardized ways to measure things, like the SAT, the Scholastic Assessment Test. It's been the standard that was used. It's been used in the United States as kind of a gatekeeper for getting into college or university or helping to determine which college or university you can get into and which ones you you can't. You have to meet a certain standard of proficiency in critical writing or critical reading in math and in writing. Uh, that, you have to meet that standard in order to get in. Uh, you can think of other ways. We, we have these kind of standardized measurements. So the BMI or the body mass index is another standardized measure, measurement system. This one's used to measure your physical health, right? You simply enter your height, you enter your weight, and based on the calculations, you discover, are you in the optimum range? Are you in the overweight category? Or are you in the obese category? Uh, My favorite standardized unit of measurement is what is referred to as the Mendoza line. Now, there's about three of you familiar with that. So let me just explain. The Mendoza line is the threshold for offensive futility in baseball. 
The name for that came from Mario Mendoza, who was a decent shortstop, but a terrible hitter. For most of his career, his batting average was less than 200. So that means that if he were to get up to bat 1,000 times, he would get a hit less than 200 of those times. That's the standard. That's the measurement that was used. And I actually know the Mendoza line really well because I am a lifelong Seattle Mariners fan. And the Mariners always attract players who sort of flirt with the Mendoza line. Like all, they, they hit like 203, right? So they're above it, but not, not really. But we have these standards, right? These ways of, of measuring things. So what is the standard for measuring faithful ministry? Well, we see it here in what Paul tells Timothy. Retain the standard of sound words that you have heard from me or follow the pattern of sound words that you have heard from me. So what, what then constitutes sound words? Well, that expression itself refers to words that promote health and healing, but Paul actually has something very specific in mind. He, re- he refers to them as the sound words you have heard from me. There is a standard set of doctrines that make up the essentials of the Christian faith. Now, I actually referred to this just by by God's providence in that passage I read from the book of Acts, right? In verse 42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. If you go back to Paul's first letter to Timothy, we'll get a good sense of what he means when he refers to the sound words that Timothy has heard from him. Paul begins his first letter by saying, as I urged you, When I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, right? That different doctrine is something that departs from the sound words, from the apostles' teaching. In chapter 6 of 1 Timothy, we read this. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching That accords with godliness, he's puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. And if you if you go back and you you just read through first first Timothy chapter six in its entirety, you will find that Paul refers to the teaching in verse one, the truth in verse five, the faith in verse ten, twelve, and twenty one, the command in verse fourteen, and that which has been entrusted to you in verse twenty. Keep the pattern or the standard of the sound words you have heard from me. Don't depart from that. So one of the principles that we use in this preaching uh, workshop that I I talked about at the start is, is something called keeping the line or staying on the line. So the text of the Bible is the line, and you're not supposed to go above the line, that is add to it, and you're not supposed to go below the line, that is to take away from it, or to say less than it says. Now, both of those things are great dangers. But I think today there is a great temptation to kind of go below the line, to say less than what the Bible says to us, to depart from sound words in that way. Uh, I've had the great privilege in the last number of years to work with uh, a number of church planters and prospective church planters. One of the things that 
prospective church planters do in the network that, that, that I'm part of, that we're part of, uh, is they do a, a church planting assessment for the church planter. And one of the things the church planters do at that assessment over three days, one of the things they do is they are given a text of Scripture, they are given time to prepare, and they deliver a short gospel message out of that passage. So think Shark Tank. They then preach that before kind of a group of panelists, and, and we basically say, yes, we buy or we have no interest in this, something like that. In truth, every one of them is given a softball text, okay? It's like, here's the ball. It's on the tee. All you have to do is, you know, hit this thing and, and, and you're good. At a recent assessment, one of the prospective church planters was given this verse. This was the text for his sermon. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So what do you do with that text? Well, if your approach is, I don't want to offend anyone, what you're going to do is you're going to talk a lot about gifts, right? We all know something about gifts, how to give gifts, how to get gifts. You know, the great thing about gifts is they are free, and the greatest gift of all is the gift that we have in Jesus. He gives us eternal life. What you won't talk about is sin and death. But when you don't talk about sin and death, you actually have no gospel to preach. There is no, what, what are you saved from at all? See, refusing to talk about sin and death is not keeping the pattern of sound words. So we don't have a Mendoza line, but we, we kind of do. We have a standard that faithful ministry is to be measured by. Now, when I I say that faithful ministry is measured by a standard, I don't just mean that, you know, we have to get all of our I's dotted, all of our T's crossed theologically. That's part of it. But there's more to it than that. Notice what Paul says. He says, follow the pattern of sound words that you have heard from me. Hold to that. In the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. So Paul's charge to Timothy is not just theological, it's pastoral. Hang on to this and do so in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Faithful ministry always pairs these things together. So we're told elsewhere in the New Testament that we are to watch our life and our doctrine closely. So it's important for us to watch our doctrine, to make sure we're, 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 keeping to the, we're holding the line on that stuff. But it's also important that we keep a watch on our life. And for the church, what this means is that the life that we live needs to accord with the doctrine that we preach, the sound words that we teach. So faithful ministry, it's measured by a standard. Second thing we learn about faithful ministry is that faithful ministry is marked by a guarding of the gospel. And this is what we see with Paul's parallel charge to Timothy in verse 14. In that verse, he says, By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Uh, To be a little more accurate, we could say that faithful ministry is marked by a spirit-empowered guarding of the gospel. If we're to keep this charge, we we need to answer the two questions. Two, Two questions, right? The first question is, what are we supposed to guard? Like, what is the good deposit? That's one question. 
The second question is, what does it mean to guard? How do we do that? So let's start with the first of those questions. What is the good deposit? What was entrusted to Timothy? Now, I've given you the answer in the, in the point. It's the gospel. But, but I just want to say, this is not the only time Paul says something about this to, Tim, to Timothy. In 1 Timothy 6, we read this. O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge, for by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. So you can see what the good deposit is by taking note of what is set in opposition to it. And what is set in opposition to it is that which leads us astray from the faith, right? So the good deposit is the gospel itself. That's what's entrusted to Timothy. Second question then is how do we guard it? What does that look like? And I I was interested. The the word that's used for guard here is an interesting word. That word's used a number of times in the New Testament, but let me take you to one other place in the New Testament where we find that word. Luke chapter 11. In, In Luke 11, Jesus says this. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. Now, I know this is a Mennonite church in Canada of all places, but this shouldn't be hard for us to picture. What does it look like to guard your palace? If you're guarding your palace, you are going to do that with every conceivable means, right? Like, just imagine you have a palace. How are you guarding it? You're probably standing there with an AR-15, right? I mean, you're, you are ready even, even though you're not allowed to have one. That you, you're just, you're fully armed. That's what it says. You're guarding it. No one's getting in here. No one is sneaking past my defenses. No one's taking what belongs to me. That's what Paul is saying to Timothy. And as I was thinking about this charge, the charge to guard the good deposit, to guard the gospel, I immediately thought about the movie, The Book of Eli. Now, The Book of Eli It's a Denzel Washington movie from 2010. It is described as a post-apocalyptic neo-Western action film. I mean, it sounds great, doesn't it? It's got Denzel Washington. Did I say that? Okay, so I'm not recommending you go home and and watch it, but but let me just kind of give you the synopsis of the movie. Denzel Washington plays the protagonist, a man by the name of Eli, He is one of the few literate people left on the planet, despite the fact that he's blind. And he carries with him the last remaining copy of the King James Bible. The movie's villain is set on taking that book from Eli. Now, there's some intense fight scenes. There's some pretty graphic violence and all of that. In the course of the movie, Eli fights off gangs of bikers and henchmen and cannibals In short, he guards that book with his very life. So can I just go spoiler alert here? Okay? It's from 2010. I know you're not going to go home and watch it, so I'm going to tell you what it's about. In the penultimate scene of that movie, Eli is shot and left for dead, and the Bible is taken from him. His one companion basically drags him and then rows him to Alcatraz Island where there's a group dedicated to preserving literature and music. 
And when they get there, there's guards, and Eli tells the guards that he has a copy of the King James Bible. When he is taken inside, he recites the entire King James Bible from memory. And the movie then ends with the Bible being placed on a bookshelf in this new community. And the reason I think that, the reason I went with that as an illustration, the reason I think that movie is a good picture of what it means to guard the gospel is because Eli not only guarded that book with his life, but he passed on the contents of that book to someone else. That's what Paul, if, if, if you read through the, the letter of 2 Timothy, that's what Paul is going to go on to tell Timothy to do. In chapter 2, he's going to say, And what you have heard from me, right, those sound words, in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. That's it, isn't it? That's the purpose of our guarding the gospel. Not so we can keep it to ourselves, but so that we can pass it on to others. Now, I don't know the worldview of the filmmakers who made that movie. I, I don't know what their motivation was, but that movie depicts in vivid form what guarding the good deposit looks like. It's such a valuable possession. We guard it with our life. We're not letting anyone take it from us. And as long as we have breath in our lungs, we're going to pass it on to others. So then what does that look like in practice? I mean, we're, we're probably not going to have to fend off bikers and henchmen and, and cannibals. At least I, I hope not. But part of the calling to faithful ministry is to fend off false teaching and false teachers. That's a charge that is repeatedly given in the New Testament. We could think of what we're told in the book of Jude. Jude writes this. He says, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write, appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. The book of Jude is all about false teaching and false teachers. And what Jude says is, look, I, I would love to write to you about the things we share in common, our common salvation, all the benefits of that. would love to write that letter. But the letter I need to write to you is this one that warns you about the danger of false teachers and false teaching. And you need to contend for the faith. What Jude is really saying to the recipients of his letter is guard the good deposit. Guard the gospel. Contend for the faith. Or we could think about what Paul said to the Ephesian elders as he gathered with them to say his final goodbyes. He said this, he said, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. In fact, if you read through the New Testament letters, virtually every New Testament letter contains a warning about false teachers. Now, I think we all know this, but false teachers do not walk around wearing a t-shirt that says, hug me, I'm a false teacher. Jesus tells us false teachers, false prophets come dressed, they're wolves, but they come dressed in sheep's clothing. Now, I used to think I knew what false teachers looked like. I mean, it was the cultists, right? It was the, the, the Mormons and the JWs. They're the false teachers. 
The prosperity gospel preachers, they're the false teachers. But in the last few years, I've been reminded that false teachers come from within the church, right? They rise up from within us. They say things that sound kind of close. There's lots of false teaching around today. We have to to be, be extremely careful about who and what we listen to. We need, to, we need to guard the gospel. We need to understand that there is false teaching around. That false teaching arises from inside the church. So, faithful ministry. It's measured by a standard. It's, it's about guarding the gospel. And then thirdly, the third thing to notice here is a little bit different, but faithful ministry will produce differing results. Look again at verse 15. Paul says, You are aware that all who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Phagellus and Hermogenes. So if one problem that Paul highlights for Timothy is the danger of false teachers, the other reality Paul wants Timothy to be aware of is the reality of false disciples. And to get a sense of how devastating this must have been for Paul, right, when he he says this, they've all turned away from me. We have to remember he labored for years in and among the churches of Asia. And from the outside, it appeared that his ministry there bore good fruit. So here's what we read in Acts chapter 19. As it talks about Paul's ministry in some of those churches in Asia, it says this continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Yet now he says, all who are in Asia turned away from me. Now, when we read that word all in that verse, I don't think we're supposed to see it as being universal. Everyone who ever professed faith in in Asia deserted me. I mean, he's going to go on to talk about another individual who didn't desert him and his entire household. But what Paul is describing here is a great defection that took place upon his rearrest. And for many, that event signaled Maybe this Christianity thing was a lost cause. And Paul names two individuals in particular, Phagellus and Hermogenes. And we don't know anything else about these two men. All we know is that when things got difficult, they headed for the exit. Now, in some ways, this shouldn't surprise us. Jesus was referring to this very thing when he taught the parable of the sower. Now, now you know that parable. You've heard it before. Sower goes out and he sows seeds and it falls on different types of soil and therefore produces something different. Jesus gives the interpretation of that parable and he says this, when anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, The evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. That's kind of these guys here. As for what was sown among the thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. 
And then as for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields in one case a hundredfold, in another 60, and in another 30. That's the nature of, of ministry. Even faithful ministry will experience different results. Now, we might not think anything when we hear the names, Phagellus and Hermogenes. But we've got our own names, don't we? I mean, we all know people who gave every indication of genuine faith. They made a profession of faith. Maybe they were baptized. They attended church and Sunday school and youth group. Maybe they were in your small group or your community group. Maybe they served in ministry in some capacity. And yet they turned away. And as a pastor, I've had a front row seat to lots of those cases. And whether it's because of the deceitfulness of riches and wanting to pursue all that or the inability to face tests and tribulations, it's always a sad thing when someone turns away from the faith. But I think we should remember, not everyone is a Phagellus or Hermogenes. Paul refers to Onesiphorus in verses 16 to 18. And there he says, May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. But when he arrived in Rome, he searched for me earnestly and found me. May the Lord grant him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. And you well know all the service he rendered at Ephesus. Onesiphorus is the exception. Lots of people turned away, Paul is saying, but not Onesiphorus. You know, I mentioned the opportunity I've had to work with church planters over the last number of years. And there's a session in our training where we talk about success in church planting or success in ministry. And I've taken enough groups through that material to know that we almost always end up with a discussion of faithfulness and fruitfulness. Or often it's usually faithfulness versus fruitfulness. How do you measure the success of a ministry? Is it by its faithfulness or is it by its fruitfulness? And the correct answer to that question is both. Now, if you think of fruitfulness only in terms of attracting the largest number of people on a Sunday morning, then you're using the wrong measurement. I mean, we just looked at the example of two men who turned away when things got tough. You can't say Paul wasn't faithful. So that'll happen even when you've been completely faithful in ministry. Numerical growth can only can be a form of fruitfulness. But the kind of fruitfulness that is produced by faithfulness is actually much deeper than that. And sometimes what it looks like is what we have in this description of Onesiphorus. Unlike those who deserted Paul after his imprisonment, Onesiphorus wasn't, wasn't ashamed of his chains. In fact, what Paul says is he traveled to Rome. He went in search of Paul. And when he got there, he often refreshed Paul. He provided all kinds of service to him. So I would just say, if we've got our list of names, when we think about Phagellus and Hermogenes, we ought to also have our own list when we think about people like Onesiphorus. People who've been transformed by the gospel of grace. Look, I, I think our church is filled with those kinds of peoples. People. Onesiphoruses. And Onesiphoretes, if you will. But that is the kind of fruit a faithful ministry will produce. Let's pray for more of it. 
Faithful ministry will produce differing results. You know, I think sometimes we have this mistaken notion. We just, for a church to be successful, they just have to get the formula right, right? They got to figure out, you know, all the various ministries that exist, have everything, you know, lined up, use this track, use this program, ask these questions. And then we become discouraged when we don't get the response we were hoping for. Well, we're, we're told that one of the definitions of crazy is to keep doing the same thing but to expect different results. And I would just say there actually are times where doing the same thing will produce different results. You know, the most famous sermon ever preached in a North American context is the one that was preached by Jonathan Edwards in Enfield, Connecticut on July 9th, 1741. It's a long time ago. His sermon title was Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And it was a message on the horrors of hell. And part of the reason that sermon became famous is because of what happened as a result of it. As the people in the pews listened to Edward's sermon, many of them began weeping. Some of them started crying out, how can I be saved? And what happened afterwards can only be described as the outpouring of God's spirit. A revival started in that little town of Enfield, Connecticut, that eventually spread all over New England It became one of the greatest revivals in the history of the United States, came to be known as the Great Awakening. So many people have heard of Jonathan Edwards' famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. What most people don't know is that July 9th, 1741, was not the the first time he preached it. He preached that exact same sermon a month earlier in his hometown in Northampton, Connecticut. Do you know what the response was? Nothing. There was no weeping. There's no crying out. There was no, how can I be saved? There was no repentance. There was no revival. And I share that with you because we do not know what will happen when we are faithful in sharing the gospel of Jesus. We don't know what the response will be. Our task is simply to be faithful in the sowing of that seed in the proclamation of that good news. Here's what Paul says in the last chapter of this book. Here's what he says to Timothy. And we all ought to take this to heart. He says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing in his kingdom. And then here's the charge. Preach the word. Be ready. In season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when when men will not, or people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. And will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. That is the call to us. Preach the word in season, out of season, whether it's convenient for you to do it, whether it's popular to do it. Just preach the word and leave the results to God. So let's just pray to that end this morning. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the way it sometimes just gives us a crystal clear call as to what we are supposed to do and what we're supposed to be doing. And Lord, I pray for our church. I pray 
that the standards we use to measure ourselves will be the ones that you have given us, that we will be faithful to your word, that we will guard the gospel you've entrusted with us, but not guard it in a closed-handed kind of way. We will guard it with a view to sharing it with others, that we will be faithful in discharging that duty. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.